All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast Series, the number one sports podcast series on planet Earth, proudly brought to you each and every week by the terrible humans at Caffeine Gum Australia. So, as you all know, regular listeners of this podcast, certainly will anyway, uh, Caffeine Gum Australia is owned by Kate and myself, and what it is, it's it's caffeinated chewing gum, so designed by the US military for athletes, special forces people, drivers, you know, people that need a quick, tasty, effective, safe dose of caffeine, and it's pretty cheap too. And you know what? Even better, everything you buy from Caffeine Gum Australia goes into supporting this podcast and... uh, you know, hopefully, eventually, I'll be able to fulfill my lifelong dreams of taking over the world if this keeps going the way it's going. So check it out, www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. Uh, getting a lot of support, and that's truly appreciated, guys. Thanks. Can I also ask that if you haven't already, please like, subscribe, share, follow, comment on uh, all the social media platforms, in particular Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, as soon as I can get to a 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, I could start earning some money, which would be nice. At the moment, this is a love job, and it's something that will continue to be a love job probably forever, but eventually, I wouldn't mind earning a dollar out of it, so if you could do that, I'll put all the links in the show notes. Subscribing on YouTube would be wonderful. Thanks so much, and that's enough promotion. Let's get on with the show. All right, this was a really, really cool episode for me. And a very, very cool guest. So um, when the opportunity came up, a mate of mine goes, I, I know Richard Harry. Would you would you want to do a podcast with Richard Harry? And immediately I went back to the 12-year-old boy. Well, I think I might have been 11 at the time who, you know, just started to take rugby seriously and, and who was looking for people to emulate and role models. And, you know, Dick... Dick was the Wallaby loosehead at the time. He's a big guy. And, you know, to be honest, he was he was probably my first rugby hero. So to have the opportunity to speak to him and um, to share some stories and to have a lot of laughs. We, I think we even had some tears in that podcast, in this podcast. Uh, it was really cool. He's, he's an awesome guy, man. Uh, as all good props are, um, yeah. So, just without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with current Waratah board member and former 99 World Cup winning loose head prop, Mr. Richard Dick Harry. Mr. Harry, very, very big welcome to the show. I'm very excited that you're on. <laughs> um, to be honest with you, mate, it, when, when the opportunity to speak to you came up, I immediately went back to the 12 year old boy who was learning to play loose head prop years ago. And you know, when, you know, when you're at that age and you start to look to people to emulate and, and people that you want to follow and characteristics that you like in people well, without, yeah. at the risk of blowing smoke up your ass straight away, <laughs> you, you were that guy for me. And um, so mate, firstly, welcome. Thank you very much oh, for mate. doing this. You know, it's an honor to have you on mate. Yeah, what a way to start, mate. I've just you validated me for the year. So, mate, uh, absolute pleasure to be here, mate. Thank you for having me. No, mate, it's my pleasure. And it's it's funny. I I generally don't do a lot of research for these conversations because I really like to have I, I like to I like normal conversations. So I don't like a question and answer style thing. But I did mm-hmm. do some reading. I did a quick Google, and it's funny. All the stuff came up. And I was like, oh yeah. He played halfback and then he, he played flanker and then went to fifth grade. So I reckon that would be a really good place to start. How, how did you actually go from being a halfback? Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you started no, no, as no. a halfback and ended up playing loose head prop in the World Cup winning Wallabies team. Uh, my interesting, just eating too much. Now, I was a sort of, I think, as I always say, I was halfback in the 15, the under 15 season at my school. And if someone had said, you're going to be running around as a World Cup loose head, at 124 kilos, um, mate, I would have said, "Get mate, I'm, report you to the cops, mate, get out." But it, mate, it was an interesting journey. I think just where I went, sort of just playing the back row, ended up through my footy once um, puberty hit, and just did all that. And I got to a point actually, funnily enough, I had my wedding. Uh, we went across to Bali, obviously ate too much, came back, and was playing sevens down in Kiama. and um, Bob Dwyer was sitting next to my dad. And we were just watching all the games. I don't know if you know Kiama. There's that the hotel side. 
Yeah. And um, he just said to dad, you know, he's a big fella down there. I think he was running around about 112 kilos playing number seven, which is probably a bit too big. And he said, uh, well, that's my son. And he said, well, mate, has he ever thought of playing front row? And this was in 1992. I think they just got back from that win against South Africa after winning in 91 in England, the World Cup. And he was obviously looking for stocks, you know, mate, he'd love to have 100 props. And dad said, no, he'd never thought of it because dad used to play loose set. And uh, man, I wouldn't worry, but I'll ask him on the car in the car on the way home. So we had that yarn on the way home, and I thought, oh, God, who goes to front row, you crazy bastard? No way. Anyway, six months later, I thought, well, actually, I've got a zero percent chance of playing in Australia for the back row. Oh, man, I'll give it a crack. And I rang him and said, Oh, it's Richard Harry speaking. And oh, yeah, I can't remember that. And mate, he just said, Look, go and see Jake Howard. Um, if he thinks you can do it physically, um, mate, you're away and we'll support you however we can. So it's obviously back in amateur days. So I went and found Jake Howard. He was at St. Joseph's College running a scrummaging clinic, of course. And, mate, I'll never forget it. I turned up, went in the uh, boarding room, was something out of like Harry Potter in the, in the boarding dining room. It was just about a 1,000 kids in this huge building, just walking down along the table. Saw Jake Howard, introduced himself, and he it's a bit like a slave auction. He sort of, you know, was feeling my calves and looking at my teeth and all that sort of shit. And yeah. he said, no, no, you've got, the, you've got the ability to do it, mate. Big enough undercarriage, off you go. And, mate, I think it was about a week later I swapped. I went back to Eastwood and I played three years in first grade in the back row and announced to them completely, not unexpectedly, that, I hey, guess what? I'm going to play in the front row. And they, they, they took them absolutely by surprise. And I had 99% of the club thinking it was the dumbest idea ever. Uh, it was probably 100% actually. Um, and went back, to, as you said, went back to fifth grade, um, went fifth, fourths, thirds in, in consecutive weeks at Tighthead. And then someone said, well, loose head's easier for whatever reason. You only got half your body in the scrum. So I jumped across the loose head back down to um, fourth grade and had a couple of games at that. Then the season finished. And then in the off season, Eastwood were talking about putting me in third grade. And that, this is the 94 season actually now. I'm jumping around a bit. Um, and that year, the emerging Wallabies were going away. And I thought, I said, well, you can't, I need to be on the stage, mate. You've got to be playing first grade. Whether you get picked or not, not the issue, but you're not going to do it from third grade. And they said, no, no, you just stay in third grade and, and we'll see how it goes. And uni, because my dad had played there, had always said to me jokingly over the years, because no one ever changed clubs, you're an amateur, just don't do it. But if I ever did want to change clubs, to let them know. So I rang him and uh, Brian Burnett, the first grade coach there, I said, mate, can I have a coffee with you? And uh, went and said, mate, can I come play with you? This is what I'm trying to do. By the end of the year, I'd like to go away to South Africa with the, emer with the um, Australian Emerging Wallabies. And I want to crack at playing first grade. He said, well, I can't promise you anything. I said, that's fine. No problem. Can you trial me in first grade? If I get my head shoved royal, royally up my bum, I have no problem with that. But I need to have a crack. And mate, he said, no worries. And then the next night I was at training, uh, just blow St. John's Oval and, mate, and then the rest is history. It's so many questions there. So, <laughs> as a as so, I'm, I'm coaching a uh, Southern Districts forward pack in the Shoot Shield, and yeah. I would argue that every single forwards coach in the competition is is trying to squeeze every single thing they can out of any front rower, trying to turn anyone they can into a front rower at the moment. Uh, I just, if anyone's listening, I would want to be a front rower in this country at the moment. How old were you when you decided that? Because to me, I'm, I'm guessing early 20s. 26. So quite late on to, to change. So I made my debut for Australia at 28. So so at that age, there's, you know, we're all 26, you're mm. almost in your prime. There's a fair bit of ego involved in all 26-year-old men. I wasn't any different. I, I can't imagine you're <laughs> any different. How was how that transition? Because playing prop is fucking hard. And, and mm. tight head's even harder than loose head. And anyone that goes from the back row to tight head, has my utmost respect, but but loose head as well. How, how did you manage that in your head and how did you go about learning how to play prop? Because mm. going from being a regular first grader and having the foresight to go, you know what, I need to play prop and then dropping down to fifth grade, that, that's quite remarkable for a 26-year-old man to, to mm. see and believe and think. Mate, it was um, challenging, really, but but – I think the first thing I did once once they gave me the grant when Jake said you know go for it, what what opened up was quite incredible actually, was this whole um, catalogue of Wallaby 
representatives, old and, and new. The first one was, you know, Topo Rodriguez. So I, got, I bought a notebook and I went and saw these guys and they just started talking and I'd just write notes. I'd, I was up in Queensland. I went and saw Tommy Lawton and Andy McIntyre, guys I'd never met. I got their phone numbers back in the old day with a dial phone. I said, so, hi, my name's Richard Harry. I'm calling from Eastwood. I just told him five minutes on my journey. No worries, mate. Yeah, let's catch up. Never met him from Bar of Soap. But this beautiful network and, mate, you're a prop. You get it, right? So it's the same boxes. now. It is, mate. You just have a mutual, massive mutual respect because you're putting your head in shitty places. So, yeah. mate... But that was stuff. There's only so much you can write down, and then I think the best analogy is golf, mate. It, it, it's there's no other way around it than just hitting golf balls. You cannot become a good golfer by going to the gym and shit like that. You've just got to do it. And then it was just scrummaging. And mate, did have actually there was an interesting day actually for uni. My third game for university, I got absolutely towed up by a guy called Huey Gordon, who played That's tight legend. end, an absolute mate, legend, yeah. unbelievable, and just hard and graft. And mate, I just I'm. Mate, literally, I went and had to be with him after the game and I was going to give up. He just tore, turned me into a pretzel. And he said it was a pivotal moment because he said up there, mate, how are you going? Had a beer. And he said, mate, a couple of times you nearly had me today. And I'm talking to a guy who was a all-black trialist, right? I know a lot of them were, but, but le- legitimately. Um, and I said, what? And he said, mate, a couple of times I was, he said, you're about half an inch away. And I didn't know what I was doing there. If you had to just put a little bit more pressure that way and maybe drop that or roll that, mate, I, I, you had me on toast. You were just... You know, there was enough pressure coming through, strength coming. Through. That for me was pivotal. And then for that, and then I thought, okay, this I'll have a go at this. And mate, it was just the appetite to learn. And I think one of the the other really big learning curve was being picked on the emerging wallabies, which was pretty um, controversial. You know, particularly having your dad as president of Australian rugby union, everybody just thought he just said pick him. And I remember got asked that question. You know, someone found, have you found that difficult having your dad involved? I said, what do you think Bob Dwyer is going to pick me? Because Phil Harry says pick my son, and he's a you know twelve stone lightweight. No, so I will ultimately have the 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 right of reply on the field. But that um, South African tour for me was pivotal. I mean, we had our first training session. Chris Carberry, who's this amazing scrum guru technician from Queensland, was our forwards coach, scrum coach. And um, Knuckles Colony, uh, Connolly was the head coach. It was a really interesting tour. And got Joe Roth was on that tour. Yeah. Uh, There's about three or four blokes who went on to win a World Cup. But our first scrummaging session was in socks at Coogee Oval. One-on-one, two-on-one. Just, just wearing three socks. Three-on-two, socks. So what you had to do, think about it. There's no leverage. You can't just push someone if you're attracted. You've got to It's all upper body. It's all judo. It's all twisting people and, and abs and back and shoulders. So that's the level of minutia we went down to. And then that was the bedrock. And then, as I said, it was no better. I ended up playing in the last game against South Africa A, um, which we went really well. I can't remember if we won or lost, actually. But I think we lost, but just. But we really accredited ourselves really well. But these are guys who, you know, big old hairy South Africans at Ellis Park yeah. in the game before they played the um, Pumas. So, and it was from there. And, and again, mate, just... I think and the other pivotal moment I will say is a guy like Alec Evans, who is just about to get inducted to the Australian Hall of Fame. He Legend. was the other one, just mate, you get a massive pearl. And I come in, it was about 98. And again, early on, I was without getting too technical. You know, it's like, you know, you try and muscle guys, you try and lift them and you try and bench press them out of the way. It just doesn't work, right? He just gave us his couple of tiny little pearls of wisdom, basically where you're engaged, where you're aiming for. So I just come straight down the face and try and get in here. And then your grips and, and basically how you're rolling shoulders, how you engage, shorter binds, you know, smaller levers, all these little things. But that took my scrummaging from that to that when I felt comfortable uh, running around international jersey. The worst day I ever had, um, was versus the All Blacks in 97, where we were, we were playing that, you know, Dowd, Olo Brown, Fitzpatrick front row. Like, mate, that was probably fun. Yeah, oh, my God. And Olo Brown is not a big dude, right? He's not like a Marius Herter from South Africa who's just a Massey Ferguson. Olo Brown is like a reasonably slightly shoulder slope, but, mate, unbelievably technical. I remember one, I was just trying to, again, brute strength him out, which was just useless. Particularly at loose head, as you know, you've only got half your body in the bloody scrum. And we were defending five yards out from our own line, our feet. They get a tight head, push over tight head scrum in a test match. And it was just oh, like, no. and, oh my, it was horrendous. And then got dropped on the plane on the way home by Greg Smith. So everyone else went to the carousel, got their bag because we were playing South Africa the following week. Dick Harry gets picked up by his kids and misses and goes home. So (laughs) there's been a couple of really shit times, actually. But it all worked out okay. I was just going to say, I I give this advice to young props all the time. I I have parents ask me, what would you give uh, advice to young props? I go, one, get a nutritionist, get a speed coach. Mm. This is a fucking hard life if you're not not, into it. But 
The other thing is, is overcoming adversity and then learning and then just gradually getting better because getting your head shoved up your ass or having a tight head push over try is bad enough playing third grade or fourth grade, let alone playing for the Wallabies. And to be able to, to learn from that and then overcome it to eventually get to where you mm. got, um, I, I can only imagine that there's a lot of people that, that, you know, you would have to thank for that. But a lot of that's got to come down to, to you as well, really. Yeah, because yeah. the amount of people I've seen, like oh, I know super rugby guys who are built to play tight head prop, but they're mm. loose head and they're good at loose head. So they don't want to play tight head because mm. they don't like having their head shoved up their ass and learning that new thing. Mm. I, I don't really have a question there, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of... No, oh, mate, I, I concur on the last point, mate. Tight head, it's a tough role, mate. You, I mean, you know, you're the strainer post of the scrum. Uh, you've got two dudes either side of you, like, and, and good in some ways because you've got more purchase, but as you said, it's double the trouble. Loosehead's challenging, I think, because you've only got half your body. And as soon as, and I said that day against Olo Brown, what I did again without getting to, I tried to get more purchase across my shoulders, turn, guess what? My bum comes out. Yeah, I'm driving yeah. him onto our hooker. Dumb as dog shit. So, mate, but again, you learn. So, mate, there was a lot of resilience, but for me, I was just a bright eyed, you know, 26, 27, 28 year old and was loving what I was doing. I did, I mean, the interesting year without going crapping on too much about the negative side. In 99, um, we were playing for New South Wales and we played and I did my, uh, I was playing for Ireland. I didn't get picked. The beginning of 99, I was not in the Wallaby 30-man squad. The beginning yeah. of 99. So I thought, oh, that's pretty fucked. What's going to happen now? Or we're allowed to swear, aren't we? Yeah, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> fuck it. That's an, affir- <laughs> that's an affirmative. Double thumbs up. Um, so I'm thinking, oh, that's fucked. Okay. Because I think, you know, that coach at the time had his certain favourite front row and, and Kearnsey wasn't in that, in Norris Bladesy. They were on the bench and I wasn't even in the squad. Yeah. Um, so, and I was playing against Ireland in a, they were in warm up games. So New South Wales, you know, they came out that year before they played the Wallabies and I ended up, you know, doing my syndesmosis and just completely screwed the lower bottom of the legs. So I was on crutches for six weeks, rehabbed it back up, ended up coming back up through the Australian Barbarians and ended up, and then we were over in New Zealand when um, Australia were over there and they did that blackout test. You remember the very first time they said everyone wear blacked and they, and yeah. I think we got dusted about, you know, 25 points or something like that. Um, but off the back of that tour, I suddenly think, okay, fuck, you better make some changes. So a bunch of us on that that emerging Wallabies, so it was Australia A actually, but you had guys like Cook Harris on it, you know, Michael Foley was on it, who went on to pack down the, in the World Cup final. It was a bunch of us on that, just running around the New Zealand back blocks in, you know, bumfuck Idaho in the South Island. But it was awesome. And it came back from that, then you get the phone call, mate, you're back in, back in the side. The next game was over in uh, Newlands. And I don't know if you, mate, no one remembers that game, but we, because we lost and it was the most, mate, the Benny Hill music should have been playing. It was just, it was horrendous. I remember the epitome of how bad it was. Matt Burke went to do a kick out. So basically um, a mall gone back to Berkey. Berkey's taken a couple of steps to kick it to buggery and it's gone straight up, straight up Matt, no, Matt Cobain's ass. He kicked oh, the ball into his own, <laughs> which is, I don't know, is that worse than falling out? But then we came back and the game after that was, the very first rugby game at Stadium Australia at 110,000 people. We were playing the All Blacks. Game. Oh, mate, well, fuck. Everyone had written us off, right? Yeah. And I'll never forget running out on that oval. It's the most incredible chills I've had in my body ever. It's just the sound of 110,000 people. And, mate, we just went out there. We're, we're bloody backs to the wall and just belted the shit out of the All Blacks. And I think then that was the game running us into the World Cup. And mate, as I said before, the rest is history from there. But that, as a team coming back from adversity, actually, interestingly, that was in the old days of faxes. We had our base up in uh, Caloundra and all these people sending faxes in, including Peter Fitzsimmons. And it was just, you guys are fucking rubbish. What the fuck are you doing? It's embarrassment to the jersey. And some bloke wrote in from Barry's Tile Shop up in Brookvale. Dummy, wrote uh, his own fucking letterhead, right? I'm handing my tickets back. You fucking, you blokes are shit. You're degrading the jersey. You don't season ticket. <laughs> Kernsey just quietly took that fax and put it in his pocket. And, mate, after we won the World Cup and we were doing our rounds around the various capital cities, Kernsey rang him and we were all listening on speakerphone. <laughs> G'day, Barry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who's that? Who's that? Oh, it's Phil Kearns from the Wallabies. Dead silence. <laughs> Who? It's Phil Kerns here, mate. We just saw we'd bring and say good day. I'm just running. How are you going with those season tickets? And the guy was like, fucking, oh, well, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. But, mate, it was beautiful. It was nice, actually, little you know, exclamation mark to uh, fast forward from those games, mate. Hey, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic story, by the way. But, sorry, it's a bit like, convoluted. No, no, it's that's right. That's This whole podcast series has been very convoluted. Yeah. Um, but what, what I'm, where I want to go, firstly, 
um, no success happens without failure. So it's good mm. to it's good to give young players because I got a lot of young players and young coaches that listen to this who only you, you only see a certain side of people, and it's usually the success and the World Cup finals and all that Absolutely. sort of stuff. But hearing the adversity that that the team and yourself had to come through is a really good thing for all for everyone mm. to li- to everyone to learn from. What what I wanted to get into you you were really on the bridge between the amateur and the professional era. Yeah, totally. And, and the team that you were a part of, I don't think it's an enormous stretch to say really sort of set the standard for the professional game that you see today in terms of how things are run, a full-time mm. setup, you mm. know, specialist coaches, stuff like yep. that. What was it like for you? Like, what are your memories from that time going from amateur to all of a sudden, geez, this is my job and, and I've got to take this seriously. And I imagine there was a heap of learning involved for everyone and, and you mm. were th- – you were there right at that time. Can can you oh, remember mate. what it was like? Oh, absolutely, and I did. I you know I was trying to make the Wallabies win. We're hundred percent amateur, right? Hundred percent. Then I sat on the bench because uh, Dan Crowley rucked Josh Cronfield's head the week before, so he got punted. By the uh, Mark Hartill went up, and I got put on the bench after about four games for New South Wales. And I'm like, holy shit, mate! Lord knows how I would have gone if I got on, but I didn't get on. But it was the hundredth Test versus New Zealand. It was a really big day. The next day, we were staying at the Park Royal here at, um, at uh, Darling Harbour. The next morning, we, the whole squad gets dragged. And that was when all the um, Rugby World Cup, or no, the World Rugby Corporation stuff was going on. So like the pyjama cricket type alternative. Yeah. So there was all this stuff milling around for weeks and weeks and weeks. So finally, Rugby Australia got the, their act together. So the day after that test match, they invited us all into the room, the squad, and said, right, you're all paid. Here's your contracts, what you've got. So it was like, holy fuck. It was about five times what I was earning in my job as a Tui's sales rep. I'm like, oh shit! So and you have to blink twice. So you you I'm can play rugby full time, and I'm getting paid this. Mate, where's the camera? It was it was very surreal because it went from, as I said, it was it was a complete revolution, not an evolution. So it was amazing. Anyway, that all went down. Um, but it was so funny. I still wasn't sure if it was real. I said to my boss, um, "Can I just stay here? I work for free, but I'm just not sure where it's going to go in a year's time." And he basically said, "Fuck off, mate. You're either full time or no time." So okay, well, that's a millisecond. Go fuck yourself. Um, so went to professional rugby and Greg Smith was our first coach, God bless him. And, and he just was always used to Tuesday, Thursday night trainings and you play on Saturday day. So to be professional, he was just going, what the fuck are we doing? I remember one time it was a week of a test match and we just went down to King Queens park and we got out, we trained we'd, and we all get strapped up, you know, the rigmarole yeah. warm up, ran some line outs, just ginned around, played some touch footy or something like that. Got back in the bus and he said, what was that all about? And he goes, oh, well, I didn't know what else to do. So I just thought I'd get you out and train. Like, Said that to yeah, you. Yeah, it was a bit. So he was cottagey, right? So first one. But, mate, he ended up fucking bloody brilliant. He was a good man. RIP. Then Rod yeah. took over and Rod just went turbocharged. And what Rod did, mate, brought all the CEO nows into exactly and, and built that setup that you're talking about. He had a very rough run. His first... Um, introduction of the Wallabies was our tour of South America, so Argentina and then Scotland, England and Scotland. And, mate, I think we, we won one and lost one against the Argies, which was unheard of. Mate. He was right, That was a really tough, tough introduction. And that's when he said, right, no way. And he, to his credit, he just said, fuck you guys, you mate. You're all st- we're still half professional, half not, you know. And he said, no, we're going full professional. So that's when he came up with the Caloundra base camp, this and that. And he'd get specialists in. Rod would get, he got Aussie rules guys in to be specialists on, on kickoffs. Um, he had this theory that if you're doing a 22, how do you do a 22? What's the opposite of how you do a 22? So we'd break it down, do the stupidest things and, and get somewhere in between. So that's how we analyze. And I think the biggest thing I take away, which I use in work now, is if you're the boss and you're the CEO, you, your job is to create an environment. And Rod did that. He had so much talent in there. He wasn't worried about it. He wasn't telling me where to put my arm or, you know, Griggs how to fucking do a spin pass. He created an environment for everyone to be successful in. And that's um, critical because you need, it's like a cake mix. You To win a World Cup, a lot of things have to happen. It's not a one-off game. It's a 10-week tournament. So you've, everything's got to be firing, no major injuries. Everyone's got to be on song. You've got to understand that. So, and he took that team. Can I go back to about adversity? So, the team, not so much the coach, in 96, 97, mate, we got flogged, actually. 97, we had a record score against New Zealand and we had a record score against South Africa. And that's actually was the last game um, that we coached us. Greg Smith coached us. Was a, it was a 57-point loss in Pretoria. And we got uh, Greg got you know punted the following week and that's when Rod came in at the end of 97. So that team, 70% of that team that got flogged by record scores for, for those two tests went on to win a World Cup. 
I made this point to the Tars the other week. Is mate, keep your heads up, boys. Like you're, you don't know it, but you're a millimeter away. Like change a couple of things, and then suddenly you're there. So to think what, and that was only in the space of what sort of two years. So from a record loss against South Africa to champions of the world, and seventy percent of the same group of people. Do you remember any? So generally speaking, people don't like change. Just generally speaking, but when Rod started global, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to say I'm trying to say it nicely. But when Rod started to implement the Calandra camp full time, and I think oh, you had Steve Nance come in and was your full time oh trainer. How did the players handle it? Was it universal oh, buy in, or was it, did it not take initially? A while? No way, mate. To your point, one hundred percent. What the fuck? We're going to live it. You know, bloody the Calandra pink motor in. And, and Nancy just came and said, you're all fat and soft and flogged the shit out of us, right? Flogged us. Uh, but again, mate, th- th- that's the proofs in the pudding. And he was right. So, mate, when you're getting flogged and you're told eight 400s and mate, it was just, oh, my God, it was horrendous. It was purgatory. And we're riding our bikes to training. We're training at the uh, Calandra Lighthouses Oval. And every now and again, a bloke would be walking his dog. You're in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, but that's what the team needed. And again, for 99, we had to qualify for that World Cup. Does there, anyone remember that? Vaguely. We played a qualify. <laughs> exactly. Like, mate, we, it, if we hadn't had that and we hadn't had Nancy, who, mate, Nancy wasn't there to make friends. He ended up, mate, being unbelievably loved. Mate, he flogged the shit out of us. And then flogged us a little bit more, probably for good nature, just for a bit of fun. And, mate, it was, that's exactly what the side needed. Um, and so, as I said, sorry, I was just going to say, at what point did the boys go, Hey, this is actually worth I think in uh 98, I think it, without putting a date on actually, I've never been asked that question. Actually, it's one of those things that happened glacially. So you look up and where we got to in, in 99, and a really good example of that. Actually, I'll give you the best example of where we got to. So, um, in that test match, no, it was 2000, and we'd already won the World Cup. So but that for me, actually, and it's right at the end of my last year, why I think that's the best time that really sort of um, is the best example of what you're talking about. I think I'd never even thought about that. So it was somewhere between sort of 98, particularly 99, when we like we're good, like we understand what we're doing and we know what we're doing. But I think where it was most exhibited was in that um, the one point loss to New Zealand at Stadium Australia when Jonah scored on the bell and yeah. they were up 20 minutes or 16 minutes into the game, they're up 20 nil. And the calmness in that side was you know, beggar's belief. Like, you're 20 points down against the All It's going to be 60 nil, you know what I mean? But it was like, we knew that, you know, just we haven't had any ball. It was very, very relaxed. Like, and when I say relaxed, everyone knew. And there was minimal talk. Um, that was the key thing for me. That exhibited, actually, just going backwards a bit too. I'll tell you the other game too, when we had that semi final uh, versus South Africa and Bernie kicked that goal and yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> Eelsie, as soon as that final whistle, after full time, was getting dark at Twickenham, he brought everyone in. And, mate, everyone, you could just see in that team, everyone knew that, mate, we're one step away. Um, that was the most important thing. It was interesting to see the next day uh, when we were watching France beat New Zealand. It was like, holy shit. But there was a really quiet confidence. Not so much that we'd win it, more that um, just do what you need to do. The rest of the look after it. So, mate, if France come out and play an amazing game, they play an amazing game. But where the team took it, just control what you can control. And I think I had an enormous amount of confidence in the guys around me. It's a really roundabout way of answering a question. Whereas I just said, the only onus was to do my job. I'm not worried about, oh, can our winger catch or tackle? You know, a bit of a lightweight, loves the disco. Or is our second row's got, you know, dishy hands. Mate, Richard, do your fucking job, mate, to the best. And don't let it around. Because I had, I had confidence in, mate, 21, 22 players, mate. And that's where we got to that next level. I guess going back to the first example, like everyone just knew that, Right. There were high quality people around you could do the job. And then that takes you to that plus one, that, that synergistic type stuff. Did you guys really get on the piss the first day you got to Ireland for the World Cup? 100%. What was so, that like? That was funny. It was good. But that's again, <laughs> do you know the story? So I've, It just came to me then. I remember reading the book where he's, he got <laughs> Guinness. I think it was Rod McQueen's book. You guys got yeah, a couple yeah. of kegs of Guinness and he said, we're not leaving I'll until we he didn't say it. No way. He was wasn't him. His, no, he was in his room going, what have I created? Because what happened? So we had 36. And again, the team knew when to turn off and knew when to turn on. That's the quality of fucking professional. And we're still sort of a bit amateur. We'd all planned the amateur day. So we still had that gene in us. It hadn't been belted out of us, you know, like breathalyzers yeah. and no alcohol after games. So I mean, you'd have a Big Mac at three o'clock on, on a Sunday morning. But we had like a 36-hour travel league. So we packed our bags at Caloundra. 
and we unpacked them at the Port Marnock uh, Golf Resort just north of um, Dublin, right? 36 hours later. So it was a horrendous travel. And we got there about, I want to say about lunchtime-ish, somewhere late morning. And everyone said, everyone was fucked. And they said, right, all right, everyone downstairs. We're going to play just nine holes of golf, keep you out of bed, right? We can't go to bed. You can go to bed later on time. No one jet lag. Yet. And we had the next day off training. We're training 48 hours later. So everyone was, oh, fuck, okay, I came down there. We played our nine holes. It's all pretty shit. But anyway, as you walk back into the golf um, club, mate, fucking big pint of Guinness was, okay, all right, fair enough. Then you fast forward to Joe Roth running up and down the hallway in the nude because he'd been dropped for Jason Little. So he was showing his form to Roddy, like <laughs> naked. Rod's locked up in his room. This guy's bashing on his door, mate. You should have heck, man. And fucking yelling and screaming. Everyone else was just, mate, gone. It was like fucking, you know, escape from New York. But what it was, it was this massive jettison of, of just drama and, and uh, shit that you had in a big travel day and a little bit just jetting, you know, letting off a bit of steam. Everyone sort of, mate, behave the next day off and then training bang and then mate, we're away but and again that's what i loved about that team mate. we we just knew when to turn on knew when to turn off mate it was still a very human group of people very human i, I i've got a theory that, that there's the beers and the broncos balance and you've got to have a good <laughs> balance to make a good team and i think at the moment it's with professional sport and social media the way it is it's probably more the broncos than the beers but I think if you can get that balance perfectly, that's when you, you tend to get that kind of success that you guys got. Was there any, I mean, obviously 99, I'm sure you've talked about it to death. I, I saw this great photo of you online kissing the World Cup <laughs> and, and I can only imagine what that felt like. But are there any significant memories from that trip, maybe away from the game that stand yeah. out to you, the support? Because uh, I, definitely. To, to me... Because at that time, I remember exactly where I was and exactly how I felt the moment you guys won the World Cup. And, mm. you know, I was, a, I was a young man then. But, you know, what was it like for you? Is there anything that stands out, you know? I've got two parts to that. So over initially, it was surreal. It was surreal for about eight weeks. Like, it was just bizarre. So when we won, um, you know, and I'll come back to the second you get it, then you go in the dressing room and, mate, you're filling the World Cup, you know, Daniel Herbert, world champion. So Herbie's boom, going out, you know, Jason, little world champion. It was just, mate, they're the most beautiful moments. And then obviously back to, we had a big dinner that night, then we went back to the hotel. I mean, it was just going off, you know, because most of the team were going home. There was a bunch of us, probably 10 or 12, who were staying on in Europe for about two weeks. Because then we, the, we had to get back to like Parliament House or something. It was our first gig. Then it was about four or five weeks of, you know, cavalcades and that stuff. 24 hours later, almost to the moment, Jason Little and I and our wives um, were sitting in a tiny little cafe in Paris. And I'll never forget, I looked at him and I said, fuck me, mate, we've just won the World Cup. It was just starting to sink in, just then. And he said, oh, mate, I've already won one. Played in three, one, two. Go fuck yourself. But best, 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 best moment for me. Um, as I said, my dad was still the president of uh, Australia. So picture this you've just won a world cup after that and i was only given a plane one so for me it was like i'm never going to be a jason little or like the boys now playing in two or three four adam ashley cooper that was it and fucking i knew that so mate it was just unbelievably euphoric um incredible and so we all lined up you know you get up the stage and you get your medal so yeah. first person's hand you shake queen second was whoever the president of world rugby was at that point in time third person my dad on stage. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Mate, and I've got a great photo where just holding each other's heads. Mate, unbelievable. I could, mate. So lucky. Mate, I'm tearing up thinking about oh, that. Mate, <laughs> so I, I, I cried to drop that, mate. But just so lucky to have that, you know, and people might think it's a wank, but to be able to go and see my dad and mum before a test match, then jump on the bus and see them after. So as a dad now with, you know, four kids and three boys – Christ, I mean, that was my absolute standout moment in my entire rugby career. Actually, oh, man, standout can... moment in life too, probably. No, very, oh, very man, lucky. I could only imagine having you having your loved ones there at the, the oh. best possible moment, and they're on the field with you. <laughs> Third person on <laughs> the dais. Like, it was wild. It was so wild. And then walking around that slow walk, and my brother-in-law, and sisters, and friends, they all rushed down. That's what I say. It was surreal. And it's the only way I could describe it for quite a few weeks. And then and the beautiful thing about it, it's in your kit bag. No one else can ever take it out, no matter what happens. Um, just very lucky, mate. Just very lucky. Because as I said, a lot of things had to go right for that to happen. A lot. And it's a cake mix. And the tiniest bit too much salt 
too much sugar, it's fucked. And it was just, it's a big chunk of it is luck. Control the controllables and made the rest to look after itself, which, whichever way. What was it like coming down from that? Because I can imagine, you know, in any moment of, of anyone's life, but particularly an athlete, you win an Olympic gold medal, you win a World Cup final, you know, you've had the highest of highs. And then you got to go back to your day job. Mm. What was, what was, can you remember what that was like going it back was, to training and going, because I imagine it would have been the Waratah preseason was the yeah, thing you yeah, went yeah, back yeah. to. And you're like, bloody hell, I've just achieved everything. Well, you know, what am I, what do I do now? Like, what was, was your I, feelings that time? I, there was definitely no downer. It wasn't like the you know morning after a big night out. Um, and because we had that that uh, wave that we rode for quite a while, and you was just constantly getting returning remember lunches and dinners and you know town keys and shit like that. I think by the time we got back, and I was very a bunch of boys did um, retire after that, so Kearns and Bladesy particularly. But I just wanted to have one year, and I was getting towards the end of my career. I knew that I wanted to have one year playing as a world champion. Yeah, and um, that was really special. That year was amazing when we we were world champions and playing in this environment where mate, we ended up having every piece of, of silverware we'd played for in two years we had in the cupboard at Mount Street, right? And it was just such a pleasure to be, and it is to this day, mate. We get together now and we're just old hacks, but the group of people were so special and the environment was so special. And what we achieved was so so special. And as I said, still, and you know, just talking about time, I'm very lucky so I'm, uh, for me there's never been a, a down day in all regards to like a um thinking about it too deeply other than just mate, how lucky and, and joyful it is mate, it's, it's hey, that, mate. that's got to be um you know in the days of social media and instagrams and facebook and youtube <laughs> and all that kind of you know let's let's just be honest crap <laughs> to have that in your memory mm. that that's got to be you know, you've you've had that experience. That's got to be an amazing thing to look mm. back on in your life. Why did you decide to retire? Were you just done? Did you have injuries? Uh, tell, tell me about that. I think I was just done. I've got really short attention span, so I'm amazed I've been talking for this long. Um, <laughs> but I just think I knew. I just felt like I wanted to move on. I mean, there was part of me, maybe, why don't you stay around for the Lions? But I was a I was and still am a big believer in not doing in retiring for the, or doing something for the right reasons. And to stay just back for the Lions was like, meh, nothing's guaranteed. Um, and I just felt I wanted to go on the next chapter. And I'd been doing some work experience and those sort of things away from rugby, um, which I was really, really stimulated with. And mate, I had my fourth, actually I had three kids when we went away for that last game um, or the, the second game against the All Blacks, which we won with Ilzi's kick. Mate, what a series that was. Jesus Real. Christ. Talk about, talk about <laughs> kicking yourself. Fucking, yeah. that was unbelievable. Actually, I'll tell you about that game. Just, mate, that was so that was my last game versus the All Blacks ever. So we're and we'd lost the first game. So if we and back in those days when there was only two bledders lows, if you got one on one, you whoever had the bledders, they retained it. And it was about three minutes to go. Their feet are scrum, or no, our feet are scrum. Uh, on our line so mate, fast forward to the career in my first game we would have got a tight head push over but we retained and i remember saying to the ref jonathan kaplan and i said mate how long to go he said oh two minutes or something like that and i thought oh fuck you know how are we going to dig our way out of this and i remember stopping and looking just before we pat the scrum i looked around wellington stadium just to look at yeah okay fair enough we've lost the all blacks i lost the letters on my last test that sucks anyway bing bang bong 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 we're down the other end and then it get penalty and Ilzy kicks the goal after full time mate the biggest example of, of what that meant you look at the photos mate we'd all fucking you know won lotto like it was because for me i would mate we'd snatched the you know elusive victory out of the jaws of defeat mate that was one of the most pleasurable wins and i think it coined that that started the joke of how do you get a champagne cork back into a champagne bottle ask any kiwi that was the day because they mate, they thought they were in it mate we were talking to guys at the airport the next morning and someone said there was this like 70 year old granny came and grabbed his Aussie scarf on the street as they're all exiting out, stamped on it like a cigarette, but mate, they were not happy. That was a beautiful oh. thing. And then we went to South Africa the following week and won the Tri-Nations for the first time. So those two weeks were phenomenal. And then I came home, flew home on a on the Sunday, fourth child born on the Monday night, and God, my wife held him in. And then, mate, the following Monday, I was in a suit sitting at a desk behind a computer, which I couldn't really work, at a full-time job. What was so, that like? That was weird. That was strange. <laughs> Thank God I was working with guys who fucking love footy. So it was reasonably relaxed to start off. And it was a new industry for me. I'd never done it before in real estate. Um, but it was good. But that's what I wanted to do. As I said before, mate, I 
just wasn't half lying. I've got a short attention span. I was really keen on getting into that chapter of my life and it happened yeah. very quick. And I played a bit of footy. Then I got a really nice um, call from Bob Dwyer um, about a month after I retired. And he said, mate, um, so I'm, I'm coaching uh, the uh, British Barbarians versus South Africa um, at Stadium in Cardiff, Millennium Stadium. Would you be interested in playing? And actually, when he first said Bob Dwyer, I thought, I got a mate who used to ring up and put stupid voices on. I said, mate, his name's Balzo. And I said, fuck off, Balzo. And he goes, it's, it's Bob Dwyer. I went, Jesus Christ. Um, hi, Mr. Dwyer. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the coolest tours ever, mate. The black and white side. I can and That was imagine. one of the greatest rugby weeks of my life. Mate, training was just basically running moves and mucking around. So, and you'd Lawrence Delalia, this and that, mate. There was five Kiwis, five All Blacks, you know, three Englishmen, a couple of Welshmen, some Pumas. Mate, these blokes, you've just fucking South Africans, mate. It was unreal and so relaxed. And, mate, to play in that jersey, that was, mate, so cool. I loved that week, actually. You talk about the beers, Broncos balance, the bar bars, the beers is up here, and the Broncos is way 100%. down 100%. <laughs> but we still acquitted ourselves. Whilst we didn't beat a fully blown test side from South Africa, we still acquitted ourselves well, mate. Mate, I had no, it, it I, awesome. the highlight of my you know playing career was uh, Aussie Barbars tour to Palmerston North in New Zealand, and I don't know if you've ever, ever been to Palmerston North, but when people when I tell people <laughs> that it was one of the best weeks of my life, they laugh at me. But it was <laughs> it was I'm like that. Rugby I was, tour for Christ's sake! Oh, but I was I was injured in the second game, and the the coach from the sideline, who's now one of the assistant coaches for the Drua, goes yeah. tell Chub tell Chubby. He can either play 10 or wing. It's his decision. <laughs> so I, play, I played on the wing for an Australian rep team versus New Zealand. <laughs> Stop it, mate. Oh, mate, it was one of the, one of the funniest things. But I, I guess yeah, one cool. of the other things I wanted to ask you, mate, is, is you're on the board for New South Wales rugby. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's very interesting to me because I've never actually spoken to a board member. And just to, to see what, what, what do you guys actually – do like what's the job and, and i can imagine that this year has been far more enjoyable than the last couple of years yeah interesting and i sort of just to give you the segue into how i got on it so i sort of got on the high performance committee i actually went for the job at um queensland on the board there hand up for that unsuccessful um to replace brett robinson but anyway i thought fuck this is good you know, all my kids are old they've left home with uni and blah blah, blah so i'm gonna be spare time i might love rugby um what I say, just approach New South Wales. I remember talking to them and say, there's anything I can help you on? Let me know. And the high performance, they needed a, a, an ex-player on that. So I got on that. So I was actually, whilst I wasn't on the board at the period of time, so the, the, the whole drama through last year and stuff. So involved with that, which was difficult for everyone. Yeah. Um, and then a spot came up on the board and I put my hand up for that because my view is, mate, obviously after last year, it was a pretty much the worst year ever. You thought, well, fuck, if you're going to be part of the solution or you can, I can just go home and watch it on TV and t- have talks like this and say, fuck, the Waratahs got to pick the game up. So I said, no, I'd love to love to get involved. And getting involved a little bit through the high performance, mate, high-quality young blokes, mate. And got a little link, obviously, through Mark Bell, a very good mate of mine with his boy Angus. So he's yeah. like my second son. I love him more than my sons. I shouldn't. That's a joke. <laughs> that's recorded. Oh, my God. <laughs> um <laughs> So I got on that way and it was, that was the motivation is just to get involved. And it was good. We were just going back to board. So board base is comprised of, there's meant to be a varied number of skill sets in there so they can, it's governance. So it oversees management to make sure that they're doing the right thing. So you've got people who are skilled in IT or marketing, HR, legal. And I was sort of put in as the high performance guy, the guy who played professional rugby, albeit 20 million years ago. Um, but mate, I'm loving it. Just, as I said, being involved, at the absolute grassroots, we had a camp in DC. I was made on the committee that picked him. He's been a revelation. Bladesy, having Bladesy back in the fold and GM. You've just got this, you know, amazing. And coming off that, said that last year, absolute rock bottom, absolute rock bottom to now be part. And it's, mate, we're, we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination, but Christ, then, you know, they've fucking really put their foot around the corner. Um, and to be part of that is just so fulfilling. So it's, mate, I'm really, really enjoying it. And it's about, going back to the early bit, it's about just setting the structure and overseeing it, but also helping where we can um, to, to improve uh, the structure and process and, and the overall you know, state of the business. That's really what the board should be about. What's the process like in selecting a coach? Because I, I couldn't imagine with the TARS, like, uh, I'm just going to be really honest, coming from a shoot shield perspective, seeing one of our own go on to be the head coach of the Waratahs has been mm. a huge boost for the entire Shoot Shield community because mm-hmm. to us it says, hey, if we go well, we can actually be in our state team. Yeah, you know, it's and it, 
it's a brilliant move. And and DC also happens to be a brilliant, successful coach who's driven it. And you can already see the cultural changes in there. Absolutely. But what's what's the process like in in selecting a new coach? How do you make sure you get it right? Um, well, it, mate, it's it's difficult. Well, you know, any job interview is like a marriage ceremony. Mate, everyone will say the right thing at the altar. It's all kisses and hugs and stuff. But it's only, you know, when the rubber hits the road is when you exit the church, right? And there's no difference in this. But, I mean, there was – and, mate, all, all candidates on paper, are, mate, anyone could do it. But I think through the interview process, mate, there's a lot of strong candidates. But generally, one obviously puts his head or her head – above the parapet and just in talking to them you sort of get to the end of the interview and say look because obviously what you have you have a bunch of criteria that you're trying to match to so we'll have a basic skill set that we're looking for so you know and be great and it's not you might have things that are you know really high on the matrix that might score that's got a weighting of 10 and there might be some with a weighting of one but you know stuff like you know it, it would be great we said going into it if we could get someone from australia or new south welshman and that would be unbelievable but it's not a deal killer da 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 so you go through that whole process and um, mate, long story short, he, he came out the preferred candidate based on that matrix. And I think one of the biggest things that got him across the line with his EQ, he's got an exceptionally high um, emotional quotient and that's being borne out at the moment. As I said, you've got good young cattle there, mate. They're, they're good there. And you see what they're doing now, right? It's the same group almost. He's had a couple of really good signings to help boost it. But what he's getting out of those guys is, and you're seeing the, the, the paper, you know, guys are re-signing for Australia because of what's the team in DC. We're staying here because there's good things hopefully ahead of us. And that's really what he's done from my point of view. It's just my point of view that he's really tapped into those sorts of things and how he structured his pre-season about building the guys up in the brain. He was very, very considered. Um, and he was very cognizant of, of the group he was inheriting, what had gone on where he needed to get them to over a certain period of time. So he's a very, very deep thinker about rugby. Um, but I think for me, the big thing was he, he has, he understands how to deal with men uh, and, and groups and how to drive those groups and bring them together to get that X plus one outcome. As I said, mate, we haven't won squat yet. We've won a few games, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but, and we're definitely, definitely moving in the right direction. That's the thing. Like you just got to give it time to settle down. Well, yeah, I've I've had this chat heaps on the podcast because I, I yeah. you know I've talked to a lot of professional coaches and coaching's a funny game, particularly professionally because you almost inherit a team and then you've got a period of time absolutely hundred percent to progress them and, and then hopefully you can get enough success within that period of time to keep your job and then you know keep oh, the improvement role. Man, it's hard. Everyone's got a three year contract till they don't. So it's but, like. And yeah, that, but, that again, that's why, as, as part of the governance, everyone just all right, pump the board again, just everyone pump their brakes, don't get too much. So th- that's where hopefully everyone has their eye on the prize. And you know, if, if things can go well with DC, and again, you know, what, what would be fantastic a New South Wales coach coaching New South Welshmen who go on to great success over a sustained period of time that's the other thing we want to make. We, you know, New South Wales is well known, produce 70% of Wallabies. They don't all play for New South Wales, but yeah. mate, this is the engine room. So we, and we've got so much to do as an organization because again, watching it over the last few years, whenever I got asked the question, what do you think of Australian rugby? It's fractured, mate. It was fractured beyond belief. And there's all there, all the pieces are there. Mate, so I spent a lot of time at a pub in the bush. So we, we sponsored bush rugby. I played bush rugby, um, mate, absolutely love it. So those guys are absolutely rusted on. So we've got all the base bits. It's up to our job as administrators and and watching you know, the people in management to put the environment in place for all those pieces to come together. And someone like you can have a very clear line of sight um, when you're 12 years old and you're playing for the bloody Yas Wombats. You can see a Wallaby jersey and you know how that's going to work. And you can see the competitions, whether they be playing Shoot Shield, then there's North Harbour, South Harbour, then there's a you know a club competition, then you're well, uh, you know, New South Wales and then you're Australia. It's got to be very clear. And at times over the last few years, it's got a very opaque. And that's, again, we've still got lots of work to do around that. But, mate, the house is on fire. So you've got to put out the house fire first, which is getting the, the Waratahs back on board. And that'll bring a lot back. To, they'll gal- galvanise the game in a major way in New South Wales. And, and the boys are well on the way. And knowing how committed they are as a group of young men is, mate, it's very encouraging. Mate, there's there's so much positive stuff happening, really. If if you look at rugby in this country, 100%. oh my god, a, a, anyone that says the support's not there is just full of shit. Oh, or not, they or don't not know looking. what they're fucking talking about. They're not exactly it's both of those. They're commenting on shit they don't know about. Mate, look what's happened now. We got the World Cup, mate. We and mate, what with the Rugby Australia board? Again, it was just going back to that fraction thing. It was you know, you've got to be careful not to comment on people publicly, but 
there's a team there and you've got these people who are highly regarded. They've got high IQs, high acumens around business. So they're doing their job. So the, the broadcasting deal, they knitted out of nothing. Um, there's the opportunity now with the World Cup. All this good stuff coming down the pipeline is phenomenal. I mean, we've got to get the game back to a financially sustainable model. That's you know, us and management's job. And we're working extremely hard on that. Um, but everyone is very cognizant of what the job is at hand. And mate, let's say it's just now a matter of healing all those fractures and coming together because you're far better at, you know, you know, one plus one plus one, it can equal four as opposed awesome. to three. But that's the key thing. And, and rugby, it's a bit tricky from a administrator's point of view because it's all part-time job for us. So we can say, oh, fuck, we tried. Anyway, can I get another it's latte, not please? Yeah, <laughs> it's no, not that, no, is it? Not. Well, it's no. not going to fuck, mate. We can't let, you know, die on the vine you know, on our watch. It, I just don't. And they said, you know, I'm so committed to just getting the thing. And there's enough guys now. You've got Dan Herbert on the board of Australia, Phil War. You've got guys who have achieved at the highest level. Years ago, you'd have administrators who've hardly ever laced on a boot. And you've got players who would never go to administration. You've now got that crossover. So when Dan Herbert talks at the board about RA, about, you know, high-performance rugby, they're fucking listening, right? Yeah. And we've got some old Alakadu who's never laced on a boot in his life, you know, telling someone what to do that's the difference now you've got these high quality people in governance positions and in management positions that mate i said the game's in in good shape i think the best shape it's been in sort of five or six years do you, do you keep an eye on the shoot shield much no absolutely mate what's your, you, is your are you a play? uni boy uni boy yeah yeah mate that's kicking off this week are you are you yes. going to get down to many games and, and check it out mate i'll get down as many as i can we've got a bloody annoying function this weekend, which I can't, but most, most definitely, I'm still very, very close to Sydney University. Um, you know, it's obviously still got a couple of connections there through Angus and his brother Huey is playing there now uh, in Colts. So, mate, love it. And, and the Shoot Shield is just, mate, such a huge fan of it. And I guess, you know, where, where they're trying to get to in this national club competition, the Shoot Shield and the Hospital Cup, whatever it's up in Queensland, they're the sorts of things that we should be tapping because there's, it's a very short jump from there to, to super rugby. And, and that's the nursery. And we should be making sure, going back to that, that clear line of sight and whether it be subbies. And I mean, look at bloody um, Charlie Gamble's story, mate. Like, ridiculous. They're playing for Petersham. My son was playing Petersham. He said there's this mad guy smashing people. And one, two years later, he's playing for the Waratahs and, and lighting it up, right? So there's got to be that. And as I said before, it's got to be very clear on, on how you can get to as far as you want to get and as far as you can get. And uh, mate, very, very passionate and bullish about it. So I think we're in good nick in regards to we've got we've got the right team around it on and off the field and we've got a clear line of sight on where we want to go to, to make the game sustainable it's just a matter of bringing those last few bits together mate there's there's so many good stories like it, i'm good mates with jed holloway played played oh, the with him. and considering where two years ago he's, he thought he'd never be back you know now he's he's captain of the waratahs at least at the moment he's knocking on wallaby doors you know that's a that's an amazing story right. as well and there's just so many in the game that that I think we need to tell, and um, there's a lot of positivity, mate. And 100%. Mate, that's all I had for you. Dick, this has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure, mate. Um, Thanks, mate. I've uh, loved it. As you can tell, I've, I chat away a lot, mate, when I'm excited. Mate, a very, very easy uh, easy podcast for me. I, you know, <laughs> digging into some old memories and, and um, you know, that was that was a lot of fun, mate. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Chubby. I really appreciate being part of it, mate. I said, look, bottom line, we are in good nick. We're going in the right direction. So, mate, everyone just get on board. Absolutely. That, mate, great way to finish. I, I reckon uh, if Sydney Uni play South uh, at Sydney Uni, let's have a beer. Uh, definitely um, on me. Mate, definitely on me, to. mate. Um, mate, awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for this, Dick. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did. As always, please make sure you like, subscribe, share, tell someone, you know, comment. Give me some feedback on who you want me to get on the podcast. I've been a bit slack lately and I need to up my game, which I will do going forward. Um, and most importantly of all, buy caffeine gum. Have one hell of a week, people. Until we meet again, peace.